Hello and welcome to the first of a three-part series on latest atopic dermatitis treatments from Medthority. In this podcast, experts Professor Jacob Thyssen and Professor Jonathan Silverberg will discuss recent approvals of JAK inhibitors to treat atopic dermatitis. A warm welcome here to this podcast discussing the evolving treatment landscape of atopic dermatitis with a special uh, focus on JAK inhibitors. And I am Jacob Zizen. I'm a professor of dermatology from Copenhagen in Denmark. And I'm very proud to co-host uh, this podcast with Professor Jonathan Silverberg from Washington in the United States. And we have a few topics that we will go through here. And um, Jonathan, let's, let's go straight to business. So there have been some recent approvals of all JAK inhibitors and also topical JAG inhibitors in both uh, the EU and the US. Could you perhaps briefly give us an update on that? Sure. Um, so first, it's a pleasure to uh, to be here with you. Um, I think it's a very exciting time in atopic dermatitis now. We've got three oral JAK inhibitors uh, that are now approved um, in the United States and many other places around the world. Um, we have um, Oral upadacitinib and oral abrocitinib are selective JAK1 inhibitors that are approved with two different doses uh, of uh, options um, in uh, EU, US, um, and other regions of the world. And um, in general, it's recommended to start sort of with the, uh, the lower doses first and then go up to the higher doses if needed. Um, in the U.S. is sort of the, the approach taken for labeling. And um, we also have uh, oral baricitinib, which is uh, considered a, a more preferential JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor that is not approved in the United States for atopic dermatitis, but is approved in the EU and many other parts of the world. Um, and really all three of these have shown uh, to have um, you know, uh, good efficacy, uh, some fairly rapid efficacy, and overall well tolerated in patients with atopic dermatitis. For the topical JAK inhibitors, this is a space that's really starting to heat up, but we do now have one approved topical JAK inhibitor, topical ruxolitinib, which is a topical JAK1, JAK2 inhibitor, uh, approved now in the United States, uh, undergoing review in other parts of the world. Um, but different patient populations. So the oral JAK inhibitors are approved for those with moderate to severe atopic dermatitis that have already failed topical therapy, and topical ruxolitinib is approved for mild to moderate atopic dermatitis with a much more limited body surface area um, uh, who've had an inadequate response to topical therapy. Thanks for providing such a, a detailed overview. And one other important thing that, that I think we should discuss with our listeners here is the mode of action. So basically, these are small molecules. They go intracellularly, where they inhibit the various JAK pairs. And as you mentioned, it's predominantly the, the JAK1 pairs that uh, we try to inhibit here with, with the various JAK uh, inhibitors that have been approved recently. But also, there are pairs of JAK1 and there are pairs of JAK2, and some of them inhibit those. And what happens when you um, activate the JAKSTAT pathway is basically there's a lot of phosphorylation that takes place, uh, autophosphorylation, that ends up with uh, a certain gene being expressed. And basically, what happens when we use these various JAK inhibitors is that we inhibit 
the Jack Stack pathway activity or initiation, and thereby we actually inhibit many of the uh, detrimental effect of cytokine activity. So the cytokines that are inhibited here are the ones that are very uh, important for the AD pathophysiology, most notably IL-4, IL-13, IL-22, and IL-31, and a few others. If I should spell out one advantage of JAK1, JAK2 inhibition is that it also inhibits IL-5, which can be important in allergic disease due to the um, recruitment of eosinophils. But Jonathan, as a clinician, what's most important here is really to look at the evidence for the safety and the efficacy of these treatments. And I mean, it's very busy right now, and I think it's hard for us to keep up, uh, even, you know, a physician, a clinical scientist like you and me, who I, I, I believe follow nearly each and every clinical trial outcome there is. But to me, it seems like everything is coming out at the same time. So I think it would be useful if we tried to provide some of the key takeaways from uh, recent clinical trials with JAK inhibitors. Could you start that discussion, please? Um, we, we don't have enough time to, uh, to go through all of uh, the data, but I think there are a few high-level points that are worth considering. So one is um, there's definitely a dose-dependent effect for the various drugs. So we see where both doses of, you know, for baricitinib, it's 2 milligram and 4 milligram, for upadacitinib, it's 15 and 30. For abracitinib, it's 100 and 200. Both doses more effective than placebo, but each uh, one of those, the higher dose, more effective than the lower dose. Um, and so dose definitely matters. <clears throat> On the other hand, when it comes to certain side effects, um, overall, both doses well tolerated. But for some of those rarer events, the higher doses may be associated with uh, more events, for example, herpes zoster or shingles, um, and so, you know, there's a, there's a balance and, and something we need to, to consider. Um, the one key feature, particularly for the JAK inhibitors is speed. Um, you know, this is something that we've seen when patients respond, they tend to respond quite quickly, typically faster than what we would expect out of biologics, um, and, you know, non-steroidal topical therapies, um, and so that's something that's uh, an important characteristic for, for a lot of patients. Um, of course, for the oral JAK inhibitors, it, it, it's stating the obvious, but they're oral medications. And that's something that is a, you know, definitely appealing to patients uh, from a preference perspective. Um, <clears throat> but we have now head-to-head -head data. Um, and the head-to-head -head data, I think, is also very impressive because it gives us a relative sense of where um, the oral JAK inhibitors fit compared to dupilumab, which has been around now for a few years, and we have some sense of where it fits in our in our treatment armamentarium. And what the studies have shown is that higher doses of abracitinib and upadacitinib are more effective uh, than dupilumab in the head-to-head -head studies. Um, and particularly, you see that those differences in the more robust endpoints, like easy 90s, easy 100s, you know, patients were getting much more to closer to clearance uh, deeper responses with respect to itch. Um, so I think those are some of the, the key points. Uh, one other, I think, to keep in mind is that uh, we've seen studies done in patient populations who previously failed uh, or previously tried other systemic and biologic therapies, and still these therapies have shown to be quite effective. Uh, so uh, especially in our patients where 
we may be considering using these not as our first line, but perhaps as a second or third line option, uh, they have shown to be quite effective even in those tougher scenarios. Those are very, very good points. Thank you for sharing. And I'm just wondering, because to me, when I look at the clinical trial safety data, overall, it looks good. It looks, as you said, that when you have the higher dose, there seems to be a higher in incidence of, of uh, some of these treatment um, emerging adverse events. But looking at some of those that has our particularly interest or attention, that would be uh, venous thromboembolism and pulmonary embolism. Do you see that it's something that we should look out for as clinicians? And if so, how should we approach it with our patients? And are there any of these JAG inhibitors where you see a stronger signal than others? It's a complicated question, but please, please see if you can address it. Sure. Um... I think the first thing to recognize is that even when we're talking about the concerns of venous thromboembolism, that fortunately these are rare events. Um, even in the highest doses, these are exceedingly rare events. So it's certainly not something we're going to see in all patients. But you know, it's we don't like any right, you know, serious events if we can avoid them. And so we definitely need to think about uh, proper patient selection and risk mitigation. And you know, I think that's really where the most important part comes out. I, there isn't that much we can do from a, you know, laboratory monitoring perspective. You know, we're not going to recommend CAT scans for patients, but what we are going to recommend is proper patient selection. Thinking about, you know, if somebody has uh, a personal history of DVT or pulmonary embolus, strong family history of clotting uh, disorders, you know, that may not be the right patient for an oral JAK inhibitor or one where I would certainly be extremely cautious and more conservative on dosing if I were forced to use them. Um, but other things like patients who are, you know, who are smokers, um, you know, who have a malignancy history that might increase uh, clotting risk, although malignancy is its own uh, side effect to be concerned about, um, you know, patients who are using oral contraceptive pills, uh, very obese patients, sedentary patients, you know, these are all things that in of themselves can increase risk of clotting. Uh, they don't mean that a patient for sure is going to get clotting either, but I would definitely incorporate those into my treatment decision making so that, um, you know, I'm choosing wisely about which patients I'm recommending these in, uh, medications for or, of, or not. I, the one thing I would just say is for the patients for topical ruxolitinib, there I'm much less concerned. I mean, that is more of a theoretical concern because, you know, if there was massive systemic absorption of this topical agent. But I think for most of the patients where we're using it that have more localized refractory disease, limited body surface area, I'm not really worried uh, in any uh, way about, uh, you know, blood clots or any other serious adverse events because there's such minimal absorption. I, it's just not something I would think about. No. I was. I have think. I think I've spent thousands of hours with rheumatologists now discussing and you know learning from their experience with JAG inhibitors. And what I understand is that you know the personal or first degree relative history of VTE or or uh, thrombosis. That's an important one. Um, very high BMI. So BMI exceeding 35. That's an important one. And then lastly, I have learned that we should not monitor the LDL. Uh, HDL-LDL HDL ratio in the beginning because it will change, but it will adapt and become normalized after three months. So I think these are good and important takeaways for us and, and you know, careful patient selection, as you said, 
that's really key to limit the VTE DVT problem. Um, then we, we, we talk about serious infections. That's also something, right? Uh, where we have to be careful if we have patients that have had, you know, recurrent serious infections, perhaps steer away from that patient category. And that can especially be the case for, you know, elderly with several comorbidities. Um, so the plus 65-year-olds perhaps go for a biologic there rather than a JAG inhibitor. But, but Jonathan, if I can just change it from, you know, this negative karma, if you will, into something positive. I think what you said about an oil solution here, uh, very fast onset of action and itch reduction, it also, I think, allows us as dermatologists to, to treat patients in a new way and perhaps other patients. So what I see now is that we have a very fast onset, uh, very fast acting drug, which can replace prednisolone in many of our patients. So, you know, those that are about to jump out of a tower or the window due to their relentless itch, there you can actually provide very uh, fast uh, control and um, it can be, you know, a bridging even uh, if the, you want to go back on a biologic or, or, or stuff like that. So, so I think as dermatologists, we have a chance to change the way we really manage our patients having several new tools in the, the toolbox. Um, and, and then I think around efficacy, I, I just want to ask you one more thing. Do you see any difference in the efficacy of these three oral JAG inhibitors? Because I have read, you know, network meta analysis, and, and we know you can't do those, but we do them anyway. But what, what is your main take away from, from, from those analyses? Yeah, so it's funny, as a trained statistician, I always caution everyone never to compare between studies. There's so many unmeasured variable differences. And then I'm the first author on two network meta analyses, so I'm <laughs> guilty of it myself. Um, so, but I do think there are certain, you know, the, the nice thing about the network meta-analyses that we do have is that we now have head-to-head -head data, which confirms, I think, the relative positioning of some of the drugs that we do know about. So it's not, it doesn't replace head-to-head -head studies for everything, nor are we going to get head-to-heads on everything, but it gives us important, I think, confirm, confirmation that the existing network meta-analyses are pretty spot on. So what we see is that really... The most effective of the drugs would be um, upadacitinib and abracitinib at their higher doses. So upadacitinib 30 milligrams, abracitinib at the 200 milligram dose would be really the most effective drugs we've seen in the field, period. And upadacitinib is maybe slightly more effective, although it's hard. That's where it's it's such a minimal difference. It's hard to really compare between those studies and know for sure slightly different endpoints, slightly different outcome measures in terms of timing and things like that. But um, but those two really set the bar in the field now. Uh, and then we've got, you know, sort of a neck and neck tie between uh, abracitinib at the 100 milligram dose, dupilumab, and then upadacitinib, maybe 15 milligrams, slightly more effective, maybe sort of neck and neck with them. But I think that gives us a relative uh, sense of where those are if you wait out to week 16. The JAK inhibitors are certainly much faster than dupilumab, but I think if you're looking at that week 16 endpoint, which has emerged as the primary sort of time point for trials, um, that gives you, it's a, a good time point to sort of anchor around. Um, and then you've got behind those, you know, trelokinumab as the new IL-13 blocker um, and both doses of baricitinib. And I think that prioritization is pretty true. I think the other thing the network meta-analyses have taught us and what we've seen in the trials is that when you add on topical therapy, 
concomitantly, you'll get additional uh, benefit, additional efficacy than if you're treating in monotherapy. Um, but I think that's the sort of relative prioritization of where I would put the drugs. Um, but I will be the first to say, I would love to have a head-to-head -head of the different JAK inhibitors with you know everything controlled and standardized so we can get a better sense of you know, is there really a difference between them or not, both in efficacy and in safety tolerability? Yeah, and then just uh, one one final thing to to I, I completely agree with the analysis. I also think we have like two two different groups of efficacy. Um, but but when we look at the the adverse events, we were around some of the more serious ones, and 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 I mean that I think that's the most important. But there are also some essential differences, right, for the more banal. Uh, adverse events between the JAK inhibitors. So, for example, looking at acne, it's hardly uh, detectable with baricitinib in the AD program, but you actually do notice it in the alopecia areata program, which is which is uh, quite surprising to me. And we didn't see it in rheumatology either. And then you have aparicitinib. We have higher prevalence estimates. I don't remember them uh, by heart, but something around, let's say, 6, 8, 10%. And then we have upadacidinib, where it reaches up to almost 20%. Um, so, so there are also differences there that I think could be important for uh, treating clinicians, looking at nausea and vomiting. Uh, perhaps there's a slightly stronger signal there for aparicidinib. Um, but, but, um, but again, head-to-head -head trials could uh, you know, teach us and educate more around this. Absolutely. Yeah, and then then just one final thing before we we wrap up, um, I just want to you know mention corticosteroids. So corticosteroids have been you know the workhorse out I think among many dermatologists for decades. Where do you see the what the the use of corticosteroids now? Is it still uh, something we can use for for atopic dermatitis patients, or are there so many alternatives now that it's completely obsolete? Yeah, so I. You know, I I have to state my own internal sort of bias. I have disliked oral steroids for a very, very long time, and I think I've prescribed them maybe five times in the past five years or more, uh, and that was probably more out of just insurance desk, you know, issues than anything else. Um, so from my perspective, I, I would love it if they were just done away with uh, because the, the side effect profile is is such a challenge. You know, I always say to patients, if oral steroids were safe, we might not need other therapies, but that they're not, and that you know, it's real challenges. Um, so, from my perspective, look, I, I think there are times when there, are, um, you know, probably more access than anything else will drive that. Um, but from a medical perspective, um, I I have very little reason now to stay on, you know, or to to get started on oral steroids. You know, the big trap of oral steroids is even if you're using them as a quick fix. For some patients, they can never get off of them. They rebound immediately, and now they're stuck on them long term. I'd rather go with a therapy that works as fast and as robustly, but more importantly, that I can keep the patients on longer term therapy if they need it. And you know, from my take on the data and my opinion, the JAK inhibitors are a much better solution uh, than the oral steroids are. I completely agree. So, Jonathan, I want to thank you so much for your, your uh, great uh, contribution to this podcast. It was really wonderful, yet brief, that we, we, uh, that we had a chance to talk here. And I hope that uh, every listener here will um, be motivated to, you know, 
continue updating their clinical practices in atopic dermatitis and utilize some of these new treatment options for their patients when needed. And then I'd just like to highlight that the listeners can look into the learning zone on methority.com um, if they want to see more. Thank you for your attention. Bye. Thank you for listening. Please join us again for our next episode where Professor Jacob Thyssen is joined by Professor Andreas Wallenberg to discuss the latest monoclonal antibody treatments for atopic dermatitis.